Right, coming up next, back to basics in the world of IP. We are here today with Josh Cunnington. Stick around, it should be fun. Hello and welcome back to Well Spoken. My name is Max Lemansky. I'm a partner in marine and international trade. And it's that time again when we're going to run through all things in the world of offshore energy and floating production. Last time we went through our upcoming uh, publications, including Well Connected 5. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that we've had some cracking feedback from that. And of course, for those of you that listen to that, don't forget you can still make a request or contribute to our upcoming book, uh, The Law of Floating Production, which is coming out in 2022. But for now, we have Josh Cunnington joining us from our IP team, who is going to tell us everything you could possibly know, but you were just too afraid to ask. So Josh, hello and welcome to Well Spoken. Hi, Max. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here, and I, I hope I can uh, live up to some extent to uh, that fantastic introduction you've just given me. Um, I'm an associate in uh, Stevenson Harwood's intellectual property team, uh, and our team deals with the development transactions and also disputes relating to IP, so basically their entire life cycle. Um, and we cover a range of sectors, but this one in particular, so offshore energy, uh, and particular oil and gas, but also now renewables, is something which we've been finding to be increasingly important, in particular because of the developments in the past few years in the sector. And for example, when you consider these hugely complicated FPSO and FLNG vessels, uh, technology and securing that technology for clients is absolutely vital. In addition, we're now seeing a huge surge in the renewable uh, technology industry, in particular hydrogen, offshore wind, and also solar. And it's the offshore wind which we've been particularly involved in recently. I've just been involved in quite an interesting uh, project for uh, some floating offshore wind turbines. So we've been involved in both securing rights in these technologies and also the disputes in relation to them. So, for example, in the past year or so, we've been involved in, in the development of some interesting regasification technology and some patent uh, disputes relating to deep-sea drilling tech and also vessel storage and offloading mechanisms. But basically, whatever the technology that is being used or developed, IP needs to be considered. And we see some various recurring themes and issues in this field, which is kind of what I wanted to touch on in this podcast episode today. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Uh, IP is definitely one of those areas where when people bring it up, um, I realise very quickly I know nothing about it. So uh, let's start with the basics. Why, why is it so important to have IP? That's a really good question. And I think it's something which is um, often overlooked. And I think one of the reasons why IP is often uh, seen as an afterthought in, in many projects so the, the, the starting point, and we're talking about, and when we're talking about IP here, we're talking about things like patents, trademarks, um, and also know-how and confidential information falls within the basic remit. Um, but in terms of patents and, and trademarks, but let's, let's kind of think about patents, because I think that's really where a lot of the value in the technology that we're dealing with lies, is that it's important to remember that these are monopoly rights. And that means that the owner or an exclusive licensee can legally stop 
competitors from using the subject of those rights, for example, the technology, a design, if it's a registered design, or a trademark. Now, IP rights are therefore at their root and their base a legal form of anti-competitive behaviour. And that really is the value, that is the foundation for the value in that IP, and that is why it's so important. And I guess really a natural follow-on from that is that the flip side to this monopoly right is that if you don't have the appropriate rights, whether through ownership or through licensing, you simply can't use that IP without infringing. And obviously, or perhaps not obviously, that is quite important because the remedies for infringement that a court can uh, give, they're not just financial. So in an ordinary contractual dispute, um, other than specific performance, you're really looking at damages on the whole. And in IP cases, it goes beyond that because we're really looking at injunctions and orders for delivery up or destruction even of the infringing products. And obviously these consequences are really serious and they go far beyond just those financial damages that I'm talking about. And they can really risk dooming an entire project if they're not dealt with properly. So damages aren't necessarily uh, a sufficient remedy or an appropriate remedy for a breach of an IP clause or, or an IP right. Um, so where do you normally end up fighting? Um, so in realistically speaking, one of the key uh, outcomes from a, an IP dispute is uh, is an injunction, as I say, to stop someone from using the the technology uh, which is covered by the, uh, the the rights. Now, obviously, you can also seek financial remedies, and they are useful. And we're talking about damages or on account of profits from the use or the exploitation of that technology. But really, we're looking to stop that third party from from using it. We also see disputes around ownership as well and they're often many many issues are tied up in the same disputes and so from an ownership perspective there are lots of lots of different um, kind of considerations that need to be made particularly at the start of projects which are developing IP. So if I commission a design do I own it? Well that's the the million dollar question sometimes sometimes not and that's a very legal lawyer's answer but uh, often, you know, it's not all doom and gloom in these agreements, and it's often dealt with quite well. However, absent agreement and agreement to the contrary, the commissioner of a design um, will not own the IP rights in that design. So let's take, for example, uh, a, a project whereby the uh, an, a contractor commissions a, uh, a designer to, to build a basic design and then develop that design ongoing and throughout the project. If there is no provision in the agreement to say that the commissioner, either the, the, the contractor in this case, will own the IP rights in that design, generally speaking, the designer itself will most likely own the IP rights. And therefore, that is just natural breeding ground for a dispute later on goes back to the, the issues that we raised with why it's important to have rights when you're wanting to then use and exploit them later on. Okay, so let's, let's take an example. Say you've got an offshore wind farm and, uh, and you, the commissioner 
decides to um, commission a, a new design of a wind turbine, uh, and they don't have such an agreement. And presume, so, what happens then? Do you, does the designer then say, "Well, you can have the 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 wind farm for a particular, you can have this design for this particular wind farm, but that's the end of it. You can't use it in another wind farm somewhere else, not without coming back and paying me more money for my design." Yeah, that that's exactly right. So it's important to remember that even if you have the permission to use it for a specific project, that is effectively a limited license. And that will most likely extend just to that project that you're dealing with. And so if there are, if you want to use it on another project, or you want to use it in a slightly different way, or you want to use developments that have been made again by the designer, then you'll need to go back to the designer and renegotiate or negotiate a new license. And then obviously you are not in a strong negotiating position at that point. Okay. Uh, and what about... Well, maybe I'll split it there. Maybe I'll jointly own it. Can I do that? And that's something that we've seen, we see a lot. We see it particularly in nascent technologies where deals are largely being struck between parties with, um, well, basically, one party has a much stronger negotiating position than another. Now, we advise that parties do not enter into a joint ownership arrangement. Um, whereby they share it. Uh, and there are numerous reasons for that. Now, firstly, co-owners, at least under English law, can't assign, i.e. transfer, they can't license, and neither can they mortgage or charge the intellectual property which is jointly owned without the other owner's permission. Now, that's a real fundamental problem because parties are really unlikely to agree some kind of blanket agreement for those issues at the start of a project and therefore it creates commercial and also legal risks as the project develops and generally speaking it prevents a co-owner's free exploitation and use of that ip um you know going forwards you want to be able to use something which you own and you want to have quiet enjoyment over it Co-ownership also has practical issues with enforcement, um, particularly because there are then questions about who controls litigation, who controls the decisions, and importantly, who bears the costs. Um, and as we'll come on to, you know, perhaps it's very, very expensive to litigate um, in relation to intellectual property around the world. So, yeah, generally speaking, joint ownership, co-ownership of this, uh, these IP rights uh, is advised against. Now, I appreciate that commercially speaking often the deal needs to be done and the parties will come to an agreement and obviously we can't well i can never stop that from happening but it is it, it is our strong view and i think it's shared amongst the ip profession that uh, co-ownership joint ownership is is not not advised you touched a little bit there on litigating around the world one thing i always find confusing is is ip in different jurisdictions if i if i own the ip here in is that right? Do I say own? Well, I'll come back to that in a second, maybe. But if I own the IP rights here in London or England and Wales, I suppose, am I protected in America? Am I protected in, in the EU? Talk me through that, Josh. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a really, really good question and something which comes up again and again um, when we're looking at projects and, and, and just talking with clients. So the starting point is that IP rights are, generally speaking, national rights. There is no such thing as an international patent or an international trademark that gives you automatic protection internationally in every single country. 
Now, this means that you have to apply for those rights in those countries individually. Uh, you can apply at once in a number of different countries um, through various systems that exist, both for patents and trademarks. But effectively, what you end up with still is a package of separate national rights that you can then enforce uh, individually. Now, there are a few exceptions to this around the world. Uh, for example, in the EU, there is an EU trademark, which applies on a unitary basis automatically in every single EU member state. And, and those are uh, managed by the EU Intellectual Property Office. In the world of patents, again, in the EU, there is a forthcoming uh, unitary patent and unified patent court which will give uh, holders the right to enforce that patent before the Unified Patent Court, uh, therefore creating a one-stop shop for, for patent disputes in the EU. Now, as I say, this hasn't come into force yet, and it has been a very long time in the coming. Uh, but at the moment, it's slated to begin formally next year at some point. However, other than those exceptions, and with a few others that apply in various places around the world, there is no international protection for intellectual property rights, and therefore rights owners are reliant on applying for and then enforcing those rights on a national basis. A Brexit-related question, do we still, um, do we still participate in the EU trademark system, or are we now on our own? We don't. Uh, there are provisions that allow existing EU trademarks to be extended into the UK, but they are treated um, effectively as UK trademarks going forwards. Um, so if a client, if a party has an EU trademark and they registered it, say, before Brexit, now there was on the, um, on 11pm on the 31st of December 2020, so effectively the 1st, 1st of January 2021, um, you were granted automatically a, in, a separate UK trademark which derived from that EU trademark. That's, there are complicated other provisions, but that's basically how it works. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and what happens if, if you're developing uh, technologies uh, across different jurisdictions? Yeah. Well, it's important then to um, consider where those jurisdictions are, um, potentially seek protection in those countries, and also um, investigate whether you might be infringing uh, rights in those, in those countries. And this is where, because the, this is where the fact that IP rights are territorial can start to increase costs and complexity. Now, we always say to clients that it's, it's you know, it, it's unfeasible to apply for protection in every single country around the world. It would be prohibitively expensive and no one does it because it is so expensive. Um, what you want to be doing is, is focusing on the place of key importance to uh, your operations and those of your competitors. So territories to consider are those of the place of construction of a project or parts of the project and the places of installation and then operation. As a right owner, you also want to consider the place, those places which are of importance to your key competitors as well. You know, take take for example uh, a a rights owner that's based in in Europe, and you have a competitor who is uh, has a shipyard in Korea. You want to be able to enforce your rights in Korea, 
even if your main operations are, say, Europe and, 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 and perhaps um, the US. So you want to be able to apply for protection in Korea so you can stop um, effectively that, that competitor copying your, your technology and your designs and building it um, in, in their own country. Sounds complicated, uh, <laughs> but fair enough. Um, what about contractual protections? Yeah, I mean, you can uh, obviously include those, and it's very well recommended to do so as part of a, a project which is developing IP. Um, the key point there is that we are then talking about protections that apply between the parties to that agreement. For example, you, you might have a warranty that um, technology does not infringe third-party IP rights. So, for example, under, a, uh, your, uh, under an agreement, uh, the designer might uh, give a warranty to the contractor to say that the design which it's providing doesn't infringe IP rights of a third party. And those, right, those warranties might, might then be passed on um, up the chain. There might also be indemnities to, to add on the protection there. But what's important to remember is that those protections don't stop third parties from suing you or any of you know, the parties who are actually using their the technology in, in, a, in a situation where there's infringement. So what this means is, is that whilst there might be some kind of warranty protection potentially, and you know, we know that it's difficult to sue under some of those warranties, often, is that it doesn't stop the fundamental problem of a third-party rights owner coming to you and suing you in potentially various different countries around the world at the same time for infringement, and if we go back to what we were talking at the, about at the very start, seeking an injunction against you to force you to stop using that technology and therefore br you know, bringing an entire project to a halt. So. What about timing? How, how long do these patents, licenses, etc. last? Well, I mean, when do they run out? Yeah, again, another great question. And I think it can be split into two bits there. So patents, they last for 20 years, um, generally speaking. Um, and so that's a finite amount, amount of time from the date that they're filed, um, not the date that they're granted. The licensing question... I mean, that is a really just a question of uh, the contractual agreement between the parties. So if you were to get a license to use a particular design and construct, a, say, a wind farm or a, uh, a vessel or part of a vessel to a specific design, then you will have a, uh, probably have a license uh, to use that technology for a, either a, sp a specific duration or more likely uh, an open-ended license to use it, use that technology um, for the purposes of then using it on the vessel for the life of the vessel. Um, but again, it goes back to what we were saying before in that that license might not then apply more broadly to further or slightly different uses that you might want to make of that license technology. So you need to be careful that you're then not infringing those IP rights by going beyond the bounds of that license. So Josh, at the moment we are seeing an awful lot of new work uh, in offshore wind and in particular the, uh, the exciting bit for us is the floating offshore wind uh, for 
deeper seas and um, for use in conjunction with, for example, um, other units such as FPSOs. Um, you see much of that across your desk at the moment? Yes, indeed. Um, we've been involved uh, in at least one project involving offshore, uh, the floating offshore turbines um and also obviously you know it is increasingly important to the industry it's obviously like the next big thing um and you can see why um i mean the, the project that we've i've recently been involved in uh, is a very interesting one and i think uh will be the source of a lot of the development in the industry um and that's around the foundations the base for these um these machines um uh, in addition to that, I think there's going to be the developments around uh, how the connections are made to um, the rest of the grid. But uh, yes, I, I think it's a really interesting area and there's certainly lots of developments that need to be considered. And I think it's this kind of nascent technology um, where IP is really, really important to get right from the very start. You know, we haven't seen that many step changes in some of these technologies, particularly wind, for a long time. And this is one of those. And I think the huge competition that's ongoing at the moment it makes it absolutely vital that all of those competitors are protecting their IP rights to the extent they can and preparing for the future where, unfortunately, they may have to be enforcing them uh, to protect those rights. And if they are, uh, let's hope that they um, ring up Josh Cunnington, who is, of course, part of our market-leading intellectual property team working with the likes uh, or partner Rob Jacob um, and Alex Peigel. Um, and of course, IP will be included in our upcoming book, The Law of Floating Production, and we'll be looking at all kinds of aspects of IP in that book. In fact, although he probably doesn't know this yet, no doubt Josh is even going to be drafting some of it. Um, so thanks very much, Josh. Um, and um, uh, we, we look forward to welcoming you back on Well Spoken in the not too distant future. Thanks very much, Max. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks.